0: Well, happy Father's Day to all you fathers out there, and uh, hopefully the women are treating the men very well today. If you remember, and I I had young kids, uh, they're all grown now, Um, but uh, they used to say, there's a Father's Day and there's a Mother's Day. When's Children's Day? And you'd say, every day is Children's Day. Well, if you are married to Angie Magnus, like I am, every day is Father's Day. It feels like that. Um, you know, today is a day when we can all sit in our recliners and watch some sports, got the World Cup on, right? Um and uh, you know, have your favorite beverage, maybe a bowl of ice cream and prop your feet up, or as she calls this, any given Sunday, right? Is Father's Day for me. But uh I really appreciate that introduction. I'm gonna give you uh, hopefully a couple nuggets to take away. Um I used to do this uh Full time when the book came out, went on the book tour, went on the speaking tour, and got hired by some airlines and some banks and some, uh, small organizations like NASA to come and teach them how to fly, which was, which, uh, really wasn't the case, but teach them a little bit about leadership and some of the principles that I took away from my time in the military. So I'll do, I'll do a little background. I'll tell you a little bit about my journey and how I got here. Um, and then hopefully tell, Rod said he wanted a couple of war stories, so and we'll we'll tell a couple of uh, g-rated war stories, okay? So um, a little bit about myself, a husband, father, Christian, love this church, very very sad to move away. Um, you know, we wanted to move where it was a little bit cooler. It's 55 degrees here in in Kalamesa uh, today. I, I don't know why we moved. But uh so we have been here in uh, at first in Lake Arrowhead uh for 9 years or 8 years and then in Redlands for 9 years and I uh, love Sanctuary Church. Um, it's been a blessing. Um, so uh, uh, I now, as Rod said, I'm a real estate developer. Most of the big, beautiful, white, million-square-foot boxes that you see in San Bernardino, Redlands, Ontario, Rancho Cucamonga, I built many of those with a great team uh, base there. Uh, we redeveloped the Norton Air Force Base, and if you watch the news, some really, really big things are getting ready to happen there. Um, and then... Uh, one day I woke up and decided I had a book in me and I needed to get it out. So I wrote a book and, uh, and uh, did that for a while. Uh, but now I consider myself an adventure traveler um, we just got back from Alaska yesterday, or day before yesterday, and it's unreal. If you haven't been there, you gotta go. If you wanna feel puny and God is big, you just go to Alaska anytime. And, and I think the state of Texas where we, uh, our family is and, and we hope to move one day, uh, fits inside of Alaska like three times. It's un- unbelievable. Um, then a little bit more, uh, I am a military brat. My father was in the military. His father was in the military. His father before that, I had no choice but to join the military. Um, so I became an Army officer. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Yes, I was uh, in special operations as a helicopter pilot. Um, it is really, a, a heli- flying helicopter is really not flying. It's beating the air into submission. It's just noisy and loud, and, and uh, it's the sound of freedom, and it's a lot of fun. And uh did that for a long time and, and uh now had to give up my toys to to do something else. But uh how did I get here? How did I get here with you all? Um you know, the guy uh on my on the left, Rod Collins, uh uh really is responsible for me being here today, but also at Sanctuary Church, um being a member here. But the fuzzy-headed guy next to him, Andrew, uh, went to, uh, went to school with my son, John Michael, at, uh, Arrowhead Christian Academy, which is a phenomenal organization. Uh, was on the board there for a number of years and just, uh, really, really enjoyed it, um, had a, having a good time. Um, and, uh, Garrett, uh, Rod's son and my son are very good friends. We lived around the corner from each other. Um, and, uh, and we just have, have really gotten to know, uh, and to love Garrett. And, uh, I would consider myself an enabler of Garrett because he is now, uh, a helicopter pilot. So he used to come over to the house and talk uh, about uh, how to become a helicopter pilot. Uh, you know, I planted a seed and he took it from there and, uh, he is just, uh, really caught on fire. So when you really find your passion, uh, I can really tell with him, he's not going to work a day in his life as long as he's flying. So he's, he's had a, uh, having a great time with that. Um, so a little bit about, my family and how I got here and why I'm standing in front of you talking about it. So my uh, great-grandfather, uh, Tom Magnus, uh, invented the flamethrower. So how cool is that? My daughter went to school one day and uh, my son went to school one day at ACA and said he invented the flamethrower. They sent him home and said, come back when you could tell the truth. And he brought a newspaper article that said he invented the flamethrower, which I'll show you. Um, I'm only kidding about sending him home, but uh, they really couldn't believe it. But, um, his son, uh, was in the army. My father was in the army. Both his brothers were in the army. All three deployed in Vietnam at the same time, which is rare. Um, and, uh, and my grandfa- grandfather, great grandfather, um, Tom Magnus, uh, the first, um, invented the flamethrower and for that, uh, was awarded the highest award you can receive from the government of South Korea because he was over there during the Korean War. And if you read about the Korean War, more so than Vietnam, the flamethrower uh, uh, changed the course of history, fought back the Chinese. And I made a mistake. I was in business in, over in China and told them that what my great-grandfather did, that didn't go over so well. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a respect and honor among warriors, and uh, and we had a good discussion about that. But my father, uh, which I'll talk, well, since it's Father's Day, I'll talk a little bit more about... Um, he also went to West Point. Again, I had no choice but to attend that school. And uh, and he uh, was a decorated combat veteran. Um, and uh, he unfortunately passed away in 2004 from the injuries he received in 1970. And I'll talk a little bit about that battle. So, proof positive. There's the newspaper article. You can't read it from there. Uh, grandfather was uh, recognized for inventing the uh, flamethrower, um, which is pretty cool. If you follow, uh, anybody follow Elon Musk on Twitter? You know who Tesla? Uh, he's uh, selling flamethrowers now, just as a joke. I don't know how that's a joke, but he is. Uh, but you know, he thinks it's manly, and he likes to to talk about it. But uh, my um, great great grandfather um, uh, Tom Magnus invented the flamethrower. So anyway, so how many of you all have done twenty three and Me the uh, DNA testing? Not not so many. Uh, as a father, as a husband, I warn you: do not do it. Alright. Do not let your wives do it because they will find out things about themselves that they didn't know was true. So, my wife also came from a military family. Um, she, her father, uh, the guy on the far right there, kind of a cross between Robert Conrad and Bruce Willis, a uh, tough, tough guy, drill sergeant, um, and, uh, he's all about five foot three. So he doesn't, he's five foot four. He doesn't scare me, but he did scare me. On the day I met my, or met him, he was cleaning his shotgun, of course. Uh, but it doesn't stop there. He then said, hey, uh, do, do you hunt? And you'll see some pictures. Yes, I'm a big hunter. love hunting. Um, he says, would you like to go hunting? I said, sure. He said, would you like to go tomorrow morning? I said, sure. What time do you want to meet? He said, 4.30. And it was like 9.30. And so, of course, I had to leave my girlfriend at the time uh, and say, okay, I'm going to go hunt with your father the next morning. Well, then I'm sitting in the woods thinking how beautiful this is. And then it dawned on me. He's going to kill me. I think he's setting me up. Well, thankfully he didn't. Uh, so Angie's uh, grandfather, was uh, he fought in World War II. I, I say that lightly because he didn't really fight in World War II. He was a professional boxer, and he went around and entertained the troops. He was in the Navy. So he fought his way through World War II. He fought uh, to entertain the troops, uh, mostly on Pensacola and, and the Panhandle. Very similar to his best friend at the time, Ted Williams, the baseball player, played baseball through World War II, and was a pilot, and they piled around together. One was a Golden Gloves a national champion in boxing, and the other was a baseball player, and they go around putting on demonstrations. But the guy on the far left, <clears throat> he is uh, my wife's great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. Uh, on Father's Day, uh, Captain David Smith fought in the, uh, in the Civil War. Now, when you marry a woman from Mobile, Alabama you take her out of the deep South and you move her around the world, she likes to proclaim how great the South is, right? And so, you know, these last 30, we've been married now 29 years, going on 30 years, and she loves to say, you know, she doesn't say the South will rise again, but she says, hey, everything else pales in comparison to Alabama, and, you know, the South is great, blah, blah, blah. I'm from, you know, Washington, D.C., New York, I'm a Yankee, and, and so she says, you know, we we have relatives that fought in the civil war so she takes a 23 and me test number one she finds out that her dad who was uh, her his his mother was a full-blooded indian we thought comes out she has zero indian in her she was adopted off of a reservation but she was not an indian so we found that out so one story falls apart second thing she finds out she's related to this guy david smith so we do some research on him he was in the first alabama cavalry ...who fought for the North. <laughs> so, wait a minute. Within a week's time frame, she found out she was not Indian... ...and she was her relatives did not fight for the South. They fought for the North. But history proved that she was on the right side of history, I think. But it does show how far back her military history goes. Um, when I met her, I was down in flight school... Uh, just like in Top Gun, got the pretty blonde, had a red motorcycle. It was 1986, number one movie. And, uh, and, uh, you know, she's my Kelly McGinnis. Uh, and, uh, and so, so we, uh, um, move around the world, have a fantastic time. Her father had just retired, so she was used to moving around and, uh, we had a, had a, uh, have had a great time and a great journey. Um, so a little bit more on the military aspects of the family. My brother uh, was a corps commander here in LA for the district engineers, uh, and then deployed to Afghanistan, um, and he was in Desert Storm with me. We've got some great pictures of us, uh, me hijacking a helicopter, going to find him and fly, uh, fly together with him. Our, uh, cousins, my, my dad's brother's son, uh, was an Apache pilot, um, and, uh, he's over in, uh, in, uh, Afghanistan now flying for the State Department. My brother was with the old guard guarding the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And uh, our other cousin, Matt Magnus, uh, is a, f- a colonel in the Air Force. And then it's time for the next generation. So uh, Angie's cousin, uh, Cole, is an intelligence uh, sergeant stationed at Fort Bragg. And then uh, we have uh, Peter Magnus. He's now the third generation of Magnuses to be out guarding uh, the Korean uh, DMZ. He's flying F-16s over there. So um, I say all that to kind of give you some context. Army, long generations of Army, all the way back to Angie's great-great-great-great-great-grandfather and my great-great-grandfather, and every generation from since then was in the Army. And then along comes my son, John Michael, and says he's going to the Naval Academy. <laughs> he's no longer in our inheritance, and he is uh, he is uh, having to pay for his own school. Actually, we all are since the Naval Academy is free, except for the taxpayers pick up the bill. So as before he shipped off, I had to wear my army t-shirt and his beat army t-shirt. Um, and, uh, if, if you remember this point in time in history, Navy had won 13 games in a row in their army Navy classic. And then the last two years in a row, armies won no coincidence. This is my, I went to the game for the first time two years ago and they won. And then last year they won. Um, so John Michael is now uh, going through Marine Corps training at Quantico. Um, so he thinks he wants to be a Marine. He's got one more year to decide, or actually three more months to decide, and one more year before he graduates. So we think he's uh, going to be a grunt snake eater, live in the dirt, and do crazy stuff. So uh, so he's following in a long-standing history of uh, service to country, uh, and then go do what you want to do. So all of the Magnus men... Um, who uh, who have pointed out there have all served the country and then uh, gone on into business and that's what he says he wants to do and I didn't I didn't make him do that but I didn't have any money to pay for him to go to college anyway so he got to go to the Naval Academy so um, my father West Point graduate class of '61 um, was in Vietnam for two years any Vietnam vets out there got one in the back a couple on the sides thank you very much for Yeah, I can't, you know, having lived through his time, my dad's time deployed and, uh, and, uh, in his time coming back and recuperating and then caring for him over the time before he passed away, I can tell you that, that war in, in our time in our nation's history left a lot of scars. And, uh, a lot of people have moved beyond it. Some haven't. Uh, my dad seemed to put it behind, so far behind him, he never talked about it. And, uh, and, but a little bit about the battle he was in, so the the picture if you can see it at the top was uh, a, a along the Cambodian border in 1970 uh we moved an 8-inch battery the largest guns in Vietnam uh right up to the border had not invaded Cambodia yet which we did 10 days later after this battle uh, some Vietnamese uh sappers are, snuck into this uh to this compound and blew up the ammunition storage it was the largest explosion in Vietnam ever to that point um and killed more Americans twenty-six Americans on one day uh than died in that in the previous two years combined. Um so he was there. He uh his battle buddy uh received the Medal of Honor, Peter Lemon. My father received the Silver Star um and he lost the use of his leg, his uh one finger lost completely, um lost hearing, and he had shrapnel, kind of like uh uh Iron Man, shrapnel surrounding his heart. And just over the next 30 years, it just moved closer and closer until it killed him in 2004. Um, but he was a great man, taught me a lot, um, taught me a love for scuba diving. And I re- again, he didn't talk about his injuries. He didn't talk about his battle. But when he would take me scuba diving when I was seven years old and then developed a lifelong uh, uh, love for, for diving, I kind of figured out why. You know, he couldn't move very well on land but in the ocean. He could just swim like nobody's business and uh and he taught scuba for for years at the at at West Point. So, a little bit about my journey and uh and a little bit kind of more granular. So, as uh as Rod mentioned, when I was born, uh my father was deployed in Turkey and I uh, describe our family as the nuclear family, you know, the uh uh the couple with two kids um and we were living in a nuclear time. He was he was over in Turkey uh, during the Cold War, guarding the uh, the nuclear missiles that we had over there, aimed at Russia. So he comes back after I was born, I was about a year, or six months old, and then we start moving around the country. Um, and uh, then he deploys to to Vietnam. When he got back, um, before he got back, our mother left us. So had a six and a seven year old son uh, living here in Santa Ana uh, with cousins. And, uh, my dad pulled off a great heist. He came over, uh, and, uh, kidnapped us and took us back to the East Coast and, uh, and, uh, up to about 20 years after that had never seen my mother since then, but she didn't want to have anything to do with us. Something biological, something chemical in her, uh, just said she, uh, didn't want to have kids anymore, didn't want to be married. Um, I have fought my whole life not to let that define me. And I don't know if any of you all have some traumatic event that happened to you um, as you were younger. But it doesn't have to define you. It doesn't have to make you who you are. In fact, I like to think that it helped me become who I am through better ways. i uh, very, very close to my father. Uh, he had a huge impact on my life um and uh some of the other pictures there show us hunting we hunted as far as i can remember love for guns and love for hunting especially on the east coast and white tailed deer um and i did that for years with him so we had three boys in the family and a girl and uh the uh we my father remarried um uh, my stepmother her uh first husband was killed in vietnam and uh she was our babysitter I don't advise you to marry the babysitter, but my dad married the babysitter, uh, who was a widow, uh, while he was instructing at West Point. So uh, they had a child, my my half-brother, Paul, the, the little baby in the picture there, um, who also has been hunting his whole life. So three boys in the family, and my dad, four boys in Virginia, uh, where we lived off and on for years, uh, the bag limit was two deer, so eight deer amongst the four of us. Uh we never bought meat growing up. We had venison all the time. Uh but we developed a love for hunting through him. Um, sports, love to play sports, uh I played football at the military academy. And then uh the last picture is a picture of uh my brother who was commissioned a year early, of course he went to West Point too, and my father uh and uh and me. So growing up um, in the space age you know, in the '60s and, and early '70s, I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to be an astronaut so bad I made mean, my dad introduce me to Buzz Aldrin and Frank Borman because they were both instructors at West Point at the time too. Uh, lived it and and loved the idea of going into space. Um, I think that kind of planted the seed for being becoming a pilot and the love for uh, for flying. So as I went on, I tried to fly just about any everything I can. Uh, a couple of weeks ago. Flew for the first time supersonic upside down in a jet um, and uh, hadn't done that yet. Flew helicopters, flew Blackhawks, um, flown a, uh, a um, Stearman biplane, um, uh, flown with the Sheriff's Department occasionally here um, and uh, try to keep my skills up just enough so I don't worry too much about or have my wife worry too much about me. Um, I don't fly every day anymore, so I have to go out with an instructor, who I call a babysitter, uh, just to make sure I don't break anything. Um, so, I wrote that book about flying. I think because of my love for for space and for flying, and really wanted to uh, to uh, uh, put some of those thoughts down on paper. Um, and and some of the the things that I picked up through the time in the military were were really Geared toward um, what I call pilot vision, and these are the secrets that I uh, shared in my book. Um, everything from having the vision, having a vision. You know, it says in Proverbs, "Without a vision, the people perish." But uh, in in aviation, the being able to see further and further beyond uh, the horizon is really the most engineered part of flying. So it all ties to having a vision, having a vision for your family, being a father. Um, Situational awareness, I'll talk about that a little bit more. You won't find that in any dictionary, but it's really just an innate ability to figure out which side is up and always having a touchstone to come back back to. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. So my first assignment out of flight school after meeting Kelly McGinnis and, and, and winning Top Gun and going on to uh, Germany was flying the Iron Curtain. So at the time, the picture there shows uh, we had the American helicopters on one side of the border and the Russian helicopters on the other, and we just fly back and forth staring at each other. Uh, kind of a funny story. Depends on which side of the border you're on. Uh, we're in a, a a Cobra helicopter. We went up. The Soviet hind helicopter went up. We went down, and this hind helicopter tried to stop and couldn't go down and crashed. Um, nobody was killed. They got out. Uh news people came to the border, and by the time the news uh, came to the border, the Russians had cleaned up the, the helicopter and painted green over the burnt spot. And so you couldn't see it. But uh, those things were pieces of – they were bad helicopters, uh, and we had a lot better technology. So um, fast forward there three years. I was over there for four years. My third year, um, I was waiting to go, get transferred back to the U.S., um, and Desert Storm breaks out. My wife and I were actually somewhere down uh, and taking some ti- uh, time off down in Spain. And we uh, uh, saw it on CNN back then. I think there was one cable channel back then, CNN. And we, we uh, saw that Saddam Hussein had invader- invaded Kuwait. And then by the time we left, we had uh, uh, been activated and told that we are going to Desert Storm. So I was a lieutenant um, at the time. Um, and came back. I was in charge of the ammunition and fuel. And then a, f- a strange thing happened. My uh, The commander of one of the attack companies got relieved and said, you're not taking this company to battle. We're going to put Magnus in there. And I was 25 years old, uh, barely knew where the bathroom was and barely knew how to fly. And uh, they said I was going to command a uh, uh, a unit in Desert Storm. So after I got over the shock of that, Tried to figure out how I was going to do that. Some of my helicopter pilots in my unit were actually Vietnam veterans who had flown 20 years earlier, you know, pulling troops out of uh, Saigon as we were leaving Saigon. And now I'm the commander 25 years old. They're 50 and I'm supposed to tell them what to do. Uh, it was a big leadership challenge. Uh, big leadership challenge for my wife, who was now the commander's wife back in Germany, having to get all the wives together, some who were grandparents, and we didn't have any kids at the time, and tell them how to take care of their kids while their husbands were deployed. Big leadership challenge. Um, but we figured it out. Um, if you remember, during Desert Storm, uh, we had the Seventh Corps went around and did the big left hook uh, to get behind the uh, Iraqi Republican Guard. Um, the Republican Guard fled. Uh, there's one big battle. H.R. McMaster, our former National Security Advisor, was a tank commander. I'm a helicopter commander. He's on the ground. He shoots up the Iraqi tanks. Uh, it's a pretty successful battle. Um, but what happens? All the Iraqi tanks withdraw, and they start heading north, right to where our helicopters were. So, uh, interesting thing, all the Iraqi army starts surrendering to helicopters. Well, there's only two seats in a Cobra, and there's really no other place to put them. So, the, uh, you just start circling them and circling them and, you know, eventually the ground vehicles come up and round them up. But an interesting thing then happened as the Republican guards fled north, they ran right smack into, um, our headquarters, right smack into our, uh, helicopters were sitting in a refuel area. And so we were told, hey, you gotta get up, the Iraqi tanks are attacking, and, uh, this is the first thing we saw. I don't see any tanks. I didn't see anything. All I could see were all the oil wells that uh, Saddam Hussein had lit on fire and was trying to destroy. So it was real interesting uh, to try to see, in pilot vision going back to the book, trying to see further and further and not being able to see through those obscurations. So um, I'd read somewhere that this they had actually done this in Vietnam. So I said, hey, if it worked there, maybe it'll work here. I asked all the American tanks on a certain frequency to put out purple smoke. And they put out the purple smoke. And, of course, the ones who didn't put off the purple smoke were the bad guys. So our helicopters were able to engage them and prevent the Iraqi tanks from running into the headquarters. Um, so that was uh, an interesting battle that we were in. One of the only uh, helicopter-on-tank battles that occurred uh, during Desert Storm. It was only a four-day war, so I don't know how much you know shooting really could go on then. But we were back in Germany soon after that. And then... Um, I saw as we were leaving Desert Storm and we were on the ramp washing all our helicopters, getting ready to load them out, I saw these guys running around with beards and long black hair flying black helicopters. And I said, who are they? I said, well, those are night stalkers. You're not one of those. And I said, well, I want to be that guy. First I wanted to be an astronaut. That didn't work out. So now I want to be a night stalker. So uh, I went and talked to the recruiter and said, hey, look, I I think I want to be a night stalker. He says, well, you don't understand. you got to go try out. You've got to assess. It's a three-week uh, exercise to figure out if we want you. And then you, uh, we'll then put you into training to see if you can make it through. And then after that, we'll see if you can be a night stalker. So I said, okay, I'll try that. And this is the aircraft they wanted me to fly. It was a aircraft that was used back in Vietnam, only used in this unit. Um, hang some guns on it, and I'm back in business as a gun pilot. So um, I talk about in the book Pilot Vision about having situational awareness. Because when you're flying like this... You are, need to be situationally aware. You need to know where your guy behind you is, the guy in front of you, uh, uh, where they are, and where where your rocket pods and guns are pointed at all time because you're flying like this. This is in daytime, but we only flew at night and only flew uh, close together so that the enemy wouldn't see us on radar. So, um, I flew like that for a while and then was sent back for a transition to a helicopter. Now, you don't have to, you have to understand, the, the animosity between army and navy is pretty intense, but the animosity between a what we call a lift pilot and a gun pilot in the army is even worse. I did not want to be a Black Hawk pilot because a Black Hawk pilot all they did was haul people around. A gun pilot gets to shoot things, so I thought that was what I wanted to do. Um, so uh, we deployed to Somalia, uh, and if you've seen uh, the movie Black Hawk Down, you'll see that we flew during the daytime. Should never have happened. We had four aircraft shot down, which should never have happened. And, uh, we had a special program called the Armed Black Hawk, which had rockets and guns on it, which the Defense Department didn't let us take over there because we were on a peacekeeping mission. So we, uh, it didn't turn out, uh, very well. We lost, uh, 14 Americans, uh, on one day and another the next day. And it was a tragic event, but it also changed the course of my life. Um, but the, the people that you see here in the picture were true warriors. Uh, flew all night, uh, and in support of, uh, the, uh, rangers on the ground. But I talk about in the book in pilot vision about communication and in marriage and being a father, communication's everything, right? If you can't communicate your vision for your family, um, you might as well, uh, not have a plan. But being able to communicate here in uh, Somalia, the biggest problem we had was the ground guys talking to the air. And it was being relayed through a, a command and control helicopter. So you couldn't talk directly to the guy on the ground. You had to talk to somebody else who then would relay your message. And it was often garbled and it was often delayed. And, you know, in life, if you can't communicate, um, I always say when you get on an airplane, always say good morning to the pilot because if he has laryngitis, don't get on that airplane. He's got to be able to communicate to the tower, right? He's got to communicate to the passengers. He's got to communicate to his co-pilot. So communication is important. We also learned something there in Somalia about planning, too. So we went over there to grab a bad guy. We ended up grabbing a bunch of bad guys and then getting some helicopters shot down. But we weren't ready for this. So six months later, uh, we deployed to Haiti, and we took an aircraft carrier with us. So a big lesson. If you're going to invade a country, you need an aircraft carrier. We didn't have that in Somalia. We had that in Haiti. And we were able to do all that without a shot being fired. We brought a big stick to the fight, and uh, we were able to plan a lot better. So I talk a little bit about pilot vision, talk a little bit about situational awareness and the power in planning. Those are all things that you can, as a father and uh, as a leader of your family, um, uh, can really incorporate. And there's others there, too. Uh, one that I think is funny is uh, is soaring with technology because uh, one of the first speeches I gave, and we're cleaning out our house as we are moving, was the power of the Internet back in 1994. I was giving a speech as I was getting out of the Army in 1995. And uh, the t- subtitle was "Internet tool or time waster." Well, I think you can pretty much say today that it is a time waster, right? Well, depends if you're on Twitter and Snapchat and all that stuff. But but uh, that was 1995. We're still fight- fighting that battle now. So Father's Day takeaways. Um, you know, there is a quote out there that says uh, there are no atheists in, in foxholes. Uh, we don't know who said that, but it is pretty true. There's a lot of faith in the military. Don't let anybody tell you, you know, the, the atheists are trying to push uh, faith out of the military, and it's an ongoing battle. We've got a lot of people who are on the ground fighting that um, to try to keep our military, who was founded on Christian principles, rooted in Christ- Christian principles. But there's no atheists in foxholes. You're always going to p- pray to a higher being because everything is out of your control at uh, some time. Um, but situation. Situational awareness and being able to plan like a pilot, I think, are very applicable to Father's Day. So, situational awareness. You know, when you're in a helicopter and you're doing diving fire and you're pulling out of the the attack, um, you got really two things you need to look at. Your attitude indicator to make sure you're right side up and in your turn, and the horizon to pick that out. So, it's our touchstone. When we're doing diving fire at night... You lose the horizon, so you're really just looking at your attitude indicator pulling out. So it's the touchstone. It's the thing you keep coming back to time and time and time again. And i found for me, it might be different for other people, but finding for me my true north has really been the Bible. It really has been the thing. Later in life, uh, I was raised a Catholic, and I, they don't like to put Bibles in the pews. Uh, but later on in life, I discovered really the power of uh, of the Bible and daily devotional and prayer, and lately discovered the power of the 4.30 wake-up. How many people wake up 4.30 or earlier? 4.30 or earlier. Um, so as men, one thing we're short on, uh, we're not short on love from our family, we're not short on on uh, material needs, but one thing we are short on is time. So I've found later on in life, and maybe, you know, all grandparents do this, they have to get up earlier and earlier, because it takes longer and longer to do things, but 4.30 wake-up, um, has given me an hour back in my life, or a half an hour back in my life. So, 4:30 wake up combined with a daily devotional and prayer and the Bible has really been my true north. It's my attitude indicator, really, to get my attitude right as uh, as I you know come out of troubles like a, and a steep dive. Uh, lastly, uh, the power and planning. So I talked talked about if we could have planned better in Somalia, uh, maybe things wouldn't have gone the way they did. We planned better in Haiti. Things went a lot better there. Um, but a pilot talks about beginning with the end in mind. When we, we used to practice cross country night, night vision goggle flights, flying from, uh, Kentucky all the way out to California. It took a couple days, but we were going, uh, we'd only fly at night and we'd have to plan, but you wouldn't plan, okay, where am I going first, second, third, and fourth? You'd always begin with the end in mind, right? You always go to the target where you're going and you plan backwards from there. And do you have two checkpoints along the way? Now, you have lots of checkpoints along the way, especially as you get closer to your target. You want to make sure you're getting closer and closer. So I call those guardrails or checkpoints, and pilots call them the same thing because you want to know that you're going for the right target. You want to know that you're going to accomplish your goal. You want to know that you're getting close to your mission accomplishment. And one way to do that that I found, again, later in life, I'm a writer, but I wasn't a journaler. And uh, I started journaling a year ago, and it has rapidly changed my life because in the Five Minute Journal, if you if you if you uh, uh, want to Google that, there's a book called The Five Minute Journal, and you write down every day how can I make this day the best it could be. You write that down in the morning at 4:30. How can you not have a great day? How can you not begin with the end in mind if you're if you're really uh, writing down how can I make today great? And guess what? At the end of the day, you're supposed to write down in your journal what could I have done better. So you get a do over. You get a do-over to say, oh, I could have done this better to make this a great day. And then you're, there's some other things in there you write down the three things you're most grateful for every day. And it really has changed my life. So the fourth, combining the 4.30 wake-up with a daily devotional and the five-minute journal has really, really been great. There's some other ones I could throw out there like intermittent fasting, but I uh, won't talk about diets because nobody cares about those, especially on Father's Day. Um, but... Uh, you know, for, for me, those things have been some late in my life game changers. And, uh, I just want to show you that I was way, way ahead of my time. I will show you the very first selfie ever taken. 1988. If you ever want to know, go back into history, Google this. This is the first, not, it's not, the, it was my first selfie. So this is, uh, flying in, uh, 1988 along the, uh, the Iron Curtain in, uh, in Germany before the wall came down. But I've enjoyed being here with you. I can't, Thank you enough uh Rod for bringing me here but uh most importantly for being a good steward of this group. This is a, an incredible uh uh team that uh that uh puts on the worship service and uh hope you all tell a friend and bring them back time and time again. Thank you.